Welcome back. Richard, it's good to see you on this day where we're going to talk about a tough topic. Yeah, yeah, these are these are um, touchy, touchy places to venture into. Yes. Um, feel like I'm climbing on a very thin sheet of ice here, just crawling out, listening to that ice crack underfoot, wondering when, when we're going to fall in. But uh, we we will uh, do so carefully. Yeah, we'll, we'll do we'll do our best. But this is a sort of an extension of what we talked about last week, where we were mm-hmm. talking about, you know, parents tendencies to sort of over parent uh, during this time when you know we're trying to get back to um, life, you know, after COVID, um, but it's like life after COVID, but it's like we're trying to do life before from before COVID, and it's a very right. odd uh, dynamic that we're trying to thread here. But um, we are going to talk, kind of extend that conversation and talk about other ways that many parents are attempting to exert control and um, and to manage and you know, I think if we're, if we're thinking about it kindly, we're think you know, parents are trying to protect uh, or see what think, what, what they think of as protecting their kids. Um, and, but some of the ramifications and consequences of that as well. Um, and right. especially as it relates to um, this really significant upsurge in book banning. Right. Yeah. Last week we talked, in fact, the title of our talk last week was proceed with caution. And um, we were we were talking to parents, we, we were advising parents to be careful about this urge to regain control because the, during the pandemic, everybody lost control of everything, okay? And so, um, and one of the things that parents of school-age children noticed is that um, prior to the pandemic, there was a certain rhythm about school Mm-hmm. Um, kids were motivated. They had some momentum. They were just about uh, ready to begin the last nine weeks of the school year. And in, in March of 2020, everything fell apart. Okay. And parents noticed that upon returning to school six months later, a year later, whenever it was, that kids sort of were out of practice. They had sort of forgotten how to go to school and they weren't, they weren't approaching assignments very seriously. Um, they weren't behaving in class the way they did before the pandemic. Um, and, and parents had this sense that um, things had gotten out of control and my, my student, my, my child wasn't doing assignments and there were a lot of zeros showing up and they were getting some low grades. And so parents started to, um, started to panic a little bit and say, wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta regain control of this. And so they started practicing what we called intensive parenting, right. where they said, I got to get this under control again. Okay. And so um, as the pet, as the acute challenges, you know, we often forget that there was a time when we were afraid to die from this, uh, this disease. I mean, that's a few years ago, right? That's what we, this was a life and death issue. It wasn't about right. homework. It wasn't about getting a zero on an assignment or having a late assignment. We were actually concerned about uh, whether we would die if we got this disease. Right. Remember, teachers were concerned. If kids bring it into the classroom, you know, what are my risks? Uh, we had to stay six feet apart. And we we were beginning to forget those acute challenges that we faced in those years. Right. And so uh, when when kids after the, you know, and we forget about all the interruptions, you know, uh, my, my, class, my child's class is quarantined. So they have to miss a week of school. They have to go back home and stay at home for a week. So we forget all of those things. And, and, um, and so we forget all the acute challenges and, and now parents are beginning to worry about, well, 
why is my child not doing as well in school? Why, why are they not taking school seriously anymore? Right. Well, I, I think that um, I think something to throw in here that is just a really important point, because I think some criticism when, when we think about the the, the effects that that um, that COVID has had on everything. I think that we're starting to get into that time frame now where people are being critical of that explanation. And they're saying, well, you know, that was two years ago. That was a year and a half ago. That was a year ago. Um, and, and and it's true. Um, you know, the interruptions from COVID have been far less this past school year. Right. But the, the problem is, is that everyone is working to catch up. And so whereas, you know, they did, we did have that time off and students were working to kind of get back into what a, a rhythm, the rhythm of school was like and everything. Right. Schools have been, um, and, and I'm going to use a word that um, that is going to have a lot of uh, different uh, connotations to it, but um, schools have been very forgiving when it comes to these these issues that students have presented with, and as a result, mm -hmm. students have grown accustomed to a lot of forgiveness. They've been they've grown accustomed to well, we're going to you know we're going to forgive these grades. We're going to make sure that they don't you know fail because they're not getting their homework done. We're going to make sure that they have opportunities to, for, for grade recovery and, and things like that. And, and while on one hand, that's great because it was like, okay, the schools are really recognizing how significant of, a, of an influence COVID had on these students and we're trying to get them back into the, the rhythm. What it's also done is it's reinforced to students that it's okay. Um, there's going to be a safety net and you're going, you're going to be able to make it anyways. And st some students, at least a, a good percentage of students have really grabbed on, grabbed a hold of that. And, and they're really using that as a, their life preserver to the point where they're not able to get back into that rhythm that we need them in. That's right. A significant number of students, even students who were doing well prior right. to the pandemic um, are not doing so well now because of this grace, uh, in a sense, they've been offered this grace. Remember in March of 220, there was no testing. Right. End of year testing, okay? Just didn't exist. And students were told nobody would be held back. And right. it didn't matter what your grades were. It didn't matter at what level you, at what grade level you were reading. Um, everybody was gonna be promoted. And then you had summer vacation. And right. then you had a, another year of interruptions. The 2020 and 2021 school year was another year of disruption and interruption. Right. And so students sort of, sort of got out of the um, habits, the good habits that they had developed over the years, um, all those began to evaporate. And so there's this very real feeling that kids seem to have forgotten how to go to school. Okay. And as a result, parents began to monitor uh, those parent portals. <laughs> they, they, they're able to have yeah. access and they're able to have access on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. They can monitor, they can keep that, that tab open all day long. Mm -hmm. They're searching for late assignments, for right. missing assignments, for low test scores. And they're ready to jump in and to provide the motivation and the momentum that their children have lost, that their school-aged children have lost. So, and it's understandable that parents want to fill in um, so that their kids don't get farther behind. They know their kids lost some time in the past few years. And so now they want to provide the momentum and the motivation that their kids seem to be lacking. And the point we made last week was that for children younger than 12, mm -hmm. um, parents can have that kind of influence. Right. I mean, even though it's not a good idea, because 
by grade, by grade three, by the end of the third grade, children should be able to monitor this themselves. Right. You know, they should be keeping track of their belongings. They should be keeping track of assignments. They should know when things are due. They should know when the spelling test is. And they should be able to manage all that on their own. Well, if parents assume that responsibility, then they're denying the kids right. the, the, the opportunity to learn how to accept their responsibility. But it's a very different challenge for kids who are 13 and older. Right. Because now you really want to turn things over to the kids. Right. And we use the term detachment parenting, that this is a time when parents need to step back and let the teenager assume more and more responsibility. Mm -hmm. So when after age 13, um, all this increased parental monitoring and, and tracking and oversight is coming at exactly the wrong time. And that was our podcast last week. And so in, in the 12 to 13, after 12 or 13, you shift to detachment parenting because no matter what we do, no matter what parents do at that point, their teenagers are going to begin to separate. Right. Okay. We talk about it over and over again. And unless you can somehow keep your children totally dependent on you, either, I don't, I don't, I, we don't advise that you do that. I, I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, there, there are ways that parents keep their children totally dependent, mm -hmm. but, but in almost all cases, they're going to do everything they can to separate and become their own person. Right. And th that's why we advise parents, um, begin to prepare your children for that and begin to prepare them that they can assume full responsibility for all of their school obligations. Okay? Right. So when we saw this article by Jennifer Gross or Jessica Gross, it interested us because what she, what she, what the title of it was is book banning is all about the illusion of parental control. And the reason this was interesting to us was because our County had just gone through um, an evaluation of books that were recommended to be banned from public school libraries. And her point is book banning is about the illusion of parental control, especially with teenagers. So we thought, well, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. You and I had just talked about the parental control with teenagers or the attempt to control teenagers. And we had just been through a book banning and here we have these two things put together. Right. Yeah. And, and it's where we were fortunate to um, here, here in our, our district, because school district, because the 16 books were recommended for uh, removal from the um, district library, school district libraries. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they what we did was a, a committee was put together. Actually, two committees were put together mm -hmm. and uh, it was the committees were comprised of people from varied backgrounds. Um, right. and, and you and I had the opportunity to sit on those committees. You were on one committee and I was on the other committee and each right. of us reviewed eight of the 16 books. Um, mm -hmm. And it was a, it was a, a fascinating process right. um, to hear people's um, opinions, thoughts, and reviews of, of, of some of these books. Some of them, which were, you know, um, Pulitzer Prize winning books, books that were, that have yeah. been around for a long time that have, really helped shape the way that we think about some things. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was an interesting process to, to review. And um, again, this article, um, she, you know, she, she talks about this, this issue um, and, and the, again, the ramifications um, and the potential 
um, the intent, I suppose, behind uh, book banning. And like, you, as you said, you know, she, she refers to it as it, it offers the illusion of parental control. Um, right. And I, I think that, well, we'll get into, we'll, we'll get into some of the, some of the issues. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we refer to a lot of things in this attempt to really protect and screen and, um, uh, you know, protect our, our, these, our students and our, our children. But a lot of times that's really, that really is just an illusion where right. we think that we're providing this protection, but it's probably not as much as we think that it is. Right. And this Jessica Gross, for those of you who don't know her, she, she writes a, a parenting column for right. the New York Times. She's thoughtful. She discusses a range of issues, everything from uh, infant, well, a recent one on infant formula um, that's in the news. And so um, in this article, um, this is a, she writes it from her particular perspective. And she talks about, <clears throat> she begins, <clears throat> excuse me, by talking about her own appetite when she was a teenager right. for reading books that had absolutely no literature. And she, she does it sort of in a humorous way. Mm -hmm. She talks about her own appetite for reading books had absolutely no literary value right. and would probably be considered at least inappropriate, possibly pornographic by any community standard that you use, okay? Um, and she talks in particular, there was a book called The Bell Jar. And I don't know whether, I remember the bell jar. It was on the bestseller list for a long time. And she said, what she took from the bell jar is probably not what her teacher intended for her to take from it. Right. And so <clears throat> she makes three important points about current demands for banning um, books, certain books from school libraries and media centers. Right. I'm yeah. Let you take that. Oh. Yeah. So the, the first one is um, that book bans, that they're really political fights, right? They're political fights um, among adults that that really leak into the lives of kids. Um, and, and it's not really about the kids. No. You know, um, one of the one of the books, for example, I, I'm going to use an example from the from what we um, <laughs> what we reviewed. And that was um, and it was actually my committee that reviewed it. Uh, and, and it was. Um, Oh my gosh, the name of it just went out of my mind. Um, the it was by the a Nobel Prize winning author, um, and it was a Pulitzer Prize winner um, mm -hmm. from the and it talked about slavery. What was the name of it, Richard? I can't remember the name of it. Was it Toni Morrison's book? Yeah, it was Toni Morrison's book. Beloved. Uh, Beloved. That's right. Man, it was like out of my brain for a minute there. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And the you know the book was um, you know it was beautifully written and. Um, and as you will, as you would imagine, uh, it's a difficult read. Um, mm -hmm. It's not in heavy circulation. There's not a lot of students that check that book out. And, and yes, there are some really challenging passages in the book where it talks about um, different assault and, uh, assaults and just talks about, you know, some really challenging and, and could be disruptive, be disturbing behavior. Mm -hmm. um, but Students who um, are, are interested in reading that, students who are interested in, in those in the topic of you know what was right. it like when when slaves were freed and and you know when um, when they were trying to make this transition to the next phase of their life, mm -hmm. um, it, it's a really well written book for you know for for looking at some of those issues. 
most of the students, most of the people who would read that book and, and try to pull something negative out of that book or, or look at it as a pornographic um, uh, a piece, mm-hmm. they're not going to, they're not going to read that book for that purpose. Right. Right. So we're talking about mm-hmm. a, a, a book with, with great literary value, mm-hmm. um, but we're looking to take it out. So that's a, that's a political fight. That's a, that's a political fight about book content and things like that. It doesn't really have anything to do with, with students. And it really doesn't consider the potential benefits that it has to those who might read that book. That's right. That's right. And so the first point she makes is these are political fights that adults are having. Uh, Okay. And this isn't about the kids. The second thing is she, she quotes um, another colleague, um, another newspaper colleague of hers. And she said the vast majority of teenagers in McMinn County already carry the modern world around in their pockets, the cussing and the sex and the violence and all of it. Um, McMinn County um, schools uh, banned the book, it's actually called Maus, M-A-U-S, and that's German for mouth. And it's about the Holocaust. So here's a book about the Holocaust that was banned in, uh, in Tennessee. So, and, and this author makes the point, she said, those kids carry around in their pocket all the cussing and the sex and the violence in their cell phones. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're already in possession of all this stuff. Right. And then the, the third point they make, that, that she makes, is these efforts to criminalize distribution of um, what would be considered pornographic material. Um, and she said that, that elect, if certain elected officials can deem pornography, non-heterosexual romance, critical race theory, social emotional learning, all of these things are being hotly debated right now. And so she cites, she talks about one Texas librarian, school librarian, who's quitting her job. And she said, I can't take the risk of um, recommending a book that might be banned and I'm going to be I'm going to be labeled as a pedophile or distributing pornographic materials. And she said, yeah. I, I can't take that risk. And so librarians could be quitting in droves simply because they feel that they're at risk. Yeah, that was that was something I was struck by in our first uh, in our first meeting um, mm-hmm. with that committee, because the there was an attorney talking. Right. And he was telling us all those state statutes and everything that we had to go by. Yeah. And, and in answering a question, he said, well, you know, Technically speaking, if any of these um, things are considered pornographic and, and we have it in our libraries, the, the, the person in charge of ordering books for the school libraries could be charged with a crime. That's right. That's right. You're, you're uh, criminalizing what was their job. Right. So, so again, you know, to think about a, a Nobel prize winning author whose book won the um, Pulitzer Prize and it's been made into a movies and, and there were multiples, several of these books were on the, on the list that we reviewed, um, that uh, having those books in the library could lead to criminal charges mm-hmm. uh, for somebody who, you know, why wouldn't those books be in a library? I mean, those are, those are examples of high quality, well-written right. literary uh, books with literary mm-hmm. value. Right. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating, the, the process. And when we really think about what it is that, you know, the ramifications of all of this, um, right. it's pretty profound. Right. Yeah. And so um, so she raises these three points and then and then she makes the point that calls to ban or burn, 
whichever you want to use, it's the same thing, are not new. Okay. Citizens, whenever citizens insist on banning books, um, I always think about that, uh, that scene from um, uh, the 1930s in Berlin, where they had that big bonfire, and people are throwing books into the bonfire. And I think, wow, that's a chilling scene. That's a that's a chilling thought that you would happily, I think, um, one of the Indiana Jones movies had that uh, included that scene in it where the, the book burning scene, um, where they're throwing these books on the bonfire. And this, these were members of the Nazi party and their sympathizers, where they were just throwing books and who knows what was destroyed in that fire. Um, and so um, we're, she, she also includes an interesting article from the American Library Association. And we put this in the show notes. Uh, the American Library Association put together a list of the 10 most banned books mm. in each year from 2001 to 2021. Right. So in 2001, these are the 10 most banned books. Right. 2002, these are the most 10 banned books. So banning books is not new. And uh, in fact, Time Magazine, over 40 years ago, published an article about the growing battle of the books. Um, and so, and she says, there's this similar dynamic at work today than, than was, it, was at work 40 years ago. And right. so the point is <clears throat> banning books is not new. The idea of getting rid of books is certainly not new, okay? But then she goes into why is there a demand to ban books currently? Okay. Yeah, and, and, and it's, okay. there are of course a lot of, competing reasons for this and a lot of reasons, you know, a lot more than just these few reasons that she mentions. But I think that one of the, the things that, are, that is important to think about is that, you know, we have this sudden increase, um, of course, following the pandemic, That's right. um, you know, because <laughs> we've had, if we just want to look at, we've had more time to look at some right. of these things. We've had more time to you know, think about some of these things. Um, Again, parents are working really hard to protect and control and shield and and um, shelter their their kids from some of these things, um, but so much of it is you know for political control or, or religious fervor. You know that that we're looking at these books introduce ideas that are against my political views or my religious views, and because they are against those views, we need to protect um, our youngsters from them in, in an attempt to, to shield and protect them from these, these ideas that may lead them astray. Right. Um, and I think yeah. that's a very common, that's a common perspective. And even when mm-hmm. we, in our committees, people talked about it in those, in, in those ways that we can't let, you know, let um, high schoolers read about, um, LGBTQ um, issues right. or, you know, uh, read a book that, um, you know, talks about, um, you know, transgender individuals in a positive light, you know, that it's something that's normal that can happen to some people. Um, and it's, it's all an attempt to shield and protect, but it's with this, with, with this guy of political and religious um, control and shielding. Right. Yeah. And so 40 years ago, there were reasons why people wanted to ban books. A um, hundred years ago, there were reasons why people wanted to ban books. And banning books is not a new idea. It, it's, it's not something that just popped up in the last um, three or four months. Um, when the pandemic hit, parents, we all lost control. And right. so 
uh, parents wanted to regain control wherever they could get it. That was understandable, okay? Um, but when teenagers went back home, <laughs> the other thing that we forget is that even college students, kids in their 20, 21, 22, when colleges shut down, kids went back home. Right. And so now you have essentially adults returning home Mm -hmm. And it was only natural that parents would say, okay, I'm the parent again. Well, but you're the parent of a teenager who's already been living on her own for two or three years. Okay. Right. So when Gross talks about the illusion of parental control, that's what she's talking about. Because when these teenagers, whether they're high school students or college students, went back home, it was only natural for parents to want to regain control of right. what they were doing. Well, at that point, kids are going to be doing a lot of things that their parents may not want them to do. Okay. Right. And rather than becoming independent, kids were forced back into a dependent relationship on, with their parents, okay? And so this period of enforced togetherness gave some parents the illusion that they could regain full authority over their children. And that is an illusion, okay? Well, right, I think that, and I think that sort of a, a, a nuanced leg of that is that, you know, when parents, when, when everybody was home together, even college right. students and high school students, everybody was home, parents witnessed more about what their teenagers and young adults are doing. And they're right. thinking, wow, I really need to, we really need to, to rein this in because, you know, it, maybe it's because, you know, 20 years ago, it was the video games. Well, we have to really rein in these video games because look at the, you know, all these, um, you know, all this these the school shootings and the um, right. violence at school all those kids play these violent video games so it must be the video games so we need to ban those we need to restrict those and then you know so this is a, this is another iteration of the same issue that well our our kids are you know becoming sympathetic to these issues or these right. social issues and so mm -hmm. it must they must be getting it somewhere and here's here's one potential place that they're getting it and it's That's in right. these books yeah, they were appalled with what their kids were learning and reading. Suddenly, they were they were watching it up close. You know, when, when kids were at school and in college, parents didn't know. Now right. they're at home, they're in the living room, they're in the bedrooms, they're at the dining room table, and parents are saying, wow, what's going on here? And so there was an understandable reaction on the part of many parents. But parents and teens are going to clash. It, right. It's going to happen. They have for, since Ever. medieval, I mean, forever, okay? And what... What Gross is saying in this article is that after age 13, parents have far less control over their children than they think they do. Because at that point, and we made this point last week, that children's hearing apparatus begins to tune more to peers than to parents, okay? So it, there's a biological change that occurs. She also makes the point that teenagers, the last thing teenagers want, and I chuckled when I got to this part, Right. The last thing teenagers want is to be like their parents. Teenagers don't want to have anything to do with adulthood. And she said, if they did, if they wanted to be an adult, they'd be doing the laundry. They'd be cleaning bathrooms. Right. They'd be going grocery shopping for meals that they're preparing. Kids want no part of that. Right. Just, they want just the opposite. Okay. But, but teenagers are not trying to become their parents. They want to be different. They want to be independent, and this includes doing and reading mm -hmm. stuff their parents don't approve of. I mean, that's almost defines what a teenager is doing. Okay, right. and and the point then the final point she makes is that 
Gross, Jessica Gross, and we might add thousands of other teenagers have read all the books that are on these year by year, uh, 10 mm -hmm. of the most banned books. Right. Um, and, so she, and, and so she rightfully asks the question, did reading these books ruin her life in some way? Did it negatively affect her in some way? Right. Did it corrupt her in some way? Right. You know? Let's not forget that it wasn't that long ago that they were calling for a ban of all the Harry Potter books. Well, that, that was one of the books that was on several of those lists. Right. Harry Potter. And I thought, man, my daughter read the entire Harry Potter series one year or as it came out. And it has had a positive and lasting effect on her. Right. I mean, not only did it not have a negative effect, it actually had a positive effect on her. Uh, it got her reading again. She had lost an interest in reading by the time she was in fourth or fifth grade. And Harry Potter inspired her to start reading again. Right. So, and, and here we quote what Gross said. She, and, and this is from an adult who went through this as a teenager. Right. She said, I'm so glad I read so many different kinds of books as a teenager, even supposedly bad ones, because it was fun because I bonded with my friends over those books, because they gave me goofy ideas I could explore in my head without act, and not acting them out in real life. And some ideas that I had to act out in real life to experience the consequences of those choices. So what she's saying here is that these books had a positive effect on her life. Yes, they were things that her parents didn't want her to read because that's what teenagers do. They do stuff their parents don't want them to think about, to know about, to read about. But she said, there's nothing negative about any of these books. And she started reading these books when she was 10 or 11 years old. She was a, uh, she was a precocious student and a good reader. Um, so, so we have to remember, I mean, from a, from a teenager's perspective, they're going to access this stuff. Right. I mean, we could talk all about what we access as teenage boys. Uh, our parents didn't want us to, but we did anyway. We found a way, okay? As, as that famous line in Jurassic Park, nature finds a way. Right, but, and, and we have to remember that, that books, books are a collection and presentation of ideas. Books are ideas, right. And, and when we ban a book, we're, we're trying to ban ideas. Right. And, and whether, you, whether you like it or not, Teenagers mm -hmm. are going to have ideas and they're going to want to explore and understand those ideas. And we can ban books all day long. But mm -hmm. as you said earlier in the podcast, um, you know, they have access to an infinite amount of uh, an infinite number of ideas. And um, some of, many of those ideas, you're not going to want them to be exposed to either. You know, mm -hmm. it's all in their pocket, you know, in their, on their phone. Right. And so, you know, again, book banning has been around for a long time. Um, you know, some, there've been some really negative, um, uh, consequences to that, some negative, um, examples of that related to, you know, you mentioned the Nazi party earlier, um, mm -hmm. same thing happened in, in China, right. In the 1960s. Oh, it was a terribly um, frightening time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and if we think about what those governments were doing at the time, what their idea was, what their plan was, is to restrict their popula population from experiencing ideas. They didn't right. want thinking about different things in, in ways that was different than what they wanted them to think about. Right. Um, you know, North Korea does the same, um, the same thing, thing right now. Right. Um, you know, they have restrictions to their, their internet and restrictions to what their population, the people there can have access to. So it, it's, it's there and it's, but it is the ideas, you know, we want, 
we want kids to think. My goodness, right. we want them to to explore their mm-hmm. ideas and their thoughts, and and that co- what comes along with that is knowing what the thoughts and ideas are from other people. Right. And you have to read to get that. That's right. And and this whole idea that if you think of books as ideas, because that's essentially what they are, they're there's somebody else's ideas. Um, that you do you want to ban, do you want to ban that kind of thinking? You want to ban ideas? Do you want to ban um, somebody else's opinions? Because it it gets very close to that what happened in Germany, what happened in China, what's happening in North Korea. Who gets to decide what gets banned? Right. First of all. Can you ban it? Because in all those countries, there was a literature that you weren't allowed to possess, but people possessed it anyway. They just did it in secret. Okay. Um, in our country, um, it was illegal to teach a slave how to read. So, but people did it anyway. Okay. And so you can't keep these things, you can't keep ideas contained. Well, you can, but under some very harsh, and do you want to do is that the country that we want? Right. Um, it was also interesting to me that the first book that was ever banned in the United States was Uncle Tom's Cabin. And the reason it was banned is because it was, it took an abolitionist stance. And this was before the war between the states, before the Civil War, the war for Southern independence. Um, This book was banned because it was banned on the, because it, it espoused, it encouraged the abolition of slavery. Okay. And so, so it was banned. Um, that to me was striking. I mean, why, why in the world would you ban a book that called for the abolition of slavery? Well, in, in 1860, we understand why. In 1850, we understand why. Okay? Right. So, so we have to be careful about banning books because books are ideas. And, and, and is that the kind of place where we want to live? Is that what our constitution stands for? Okay? Right. And so, I, think, I, I think as we're, we're kind of, pulling all this together again we, we've talked about how book banning isn't new this is something mm-hmm. that's been around for a long time right. um, but also i think you made the great point of saying uh, whose standards are we going by you know the who, supreme who gets court, to decide the supreme court has tried to, to define obscenity and pornography and everything for, for a very very long time right um and and it's it's not it has not been successful in 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 you know, formulating a, a concrete definition that we can consistently use for those terms. That's right. Um, right. The, the, I, the, this whole thing, the, the Supreme Court of the United States has struggled with this issue for over 100 years. How, what, is a, what, is, what, are, what should the obscenity laws and the pornography laws, what does it mean to be obscene? What is pornography? You know, there was a time when um, women had to wear, had to almost be fully clothed in order to go to a beach mm-hmm. in the, in the right. summertime, okay? Um, and we can cite all kinds of things that at the time sounded reasonable, um, that, that seemed to be reasonable, that changed over time. And so obscenity laws have, the Supreme Court of the United States has never succeeded in defining what obscenity and pornography are. are. Um, and we all remember that one Supreme Court justice, and I think it was in the 20s, I think 1927 or something. And he said, well, I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. That right. famous line about, I don't know, but that was a Supreme Court justice who said that. And so we, we have trouble defining exactly what 
obscenity and uh, pornography are. And it's in the eyes of the beholder. You know, what, what may look like pornography for you might not be that for me. Right. And so eventually this is going to become a legal issue. It's, you know, what are the laws right. and does this violate the law? Right. And it has nothing to do with the literary value of the book. It's that somebody's going to have to decide, and it's probably going to be some judge to decide that this book somehow violates your state's obscenity laws. Right. And I, and I think that, um, you know, we've talked about this point many times on the podcast, but many of the books that people look to have banned contain issues that are maybe controversial or maybe edgy, if we want to think about it that way or something. But these aren't, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an issue that you need to protect your child from. Usually it means it's an issue that you need to confront your children with and and, and talk to them about it and and sit with them and explore those ideas and, and share with, you know, it's perfectly appropriate to share with them your perspective of it. If you disagree with that, that view or that lifestyle or that those ideas, to talk to them about your, you know, how you disagree with it is perfectly acceptable. And that's, that's that's really healthy for them, Mm -hmm. but denying them the knowledge that it exists, believe us when we say they're going to find out that it exists. And if you talk to them about it, and if you haven't explored those ideas with them, they're just going to grab onto the ideas that somebody else is offering to them and they're not going to have any background. And so that's going to become their truth. Right. Yeah. Younger than younger than age 12. I think what we're talking about is elementary school. In elementary school, parents have a a considerable amount of control over what their children access. And we have parental controls. Uh, We control the TV. We control their devices. After age 13, that all goes away. Okay, because teenagers are going to find a way they're going to find they're going to get access to this stuff. They're not um, one, one writer put it, uh, the brainwashing is over by the time kids get to 13 or 14. You can brainwash your elementary school age children. Once teenagers start to leave the nest, your control is going to be diluted a little more every year. Okay, you're just not going to be able to control this. There's just no way that you're going to keep these books out of their hands. So in those cases, what, what Gross and others are, are saying is given that the kids are going to access them anyway, Let's let's do it together. Let's do these things with our children, not um, prevent or prohibit our children from having access to them. I don't I would rather read Harry Potter with my kids and discuss it with them or watch the Hunger Games on TV or any of these other um, questionable materials. I would rather discuss that with my children than to try to prevent them from having access to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's my role as a parent. Yeah, that that kind of control is an illusion. Um, and, and, you know, again, all we need to do really is think about those historical examples of countries and places who have who have worked so diligently to to ban books and control what their population had had access to and, and think about, you know, is that the example that we want to follow? Right. Uh, here, here in our country and in, in our communities. And um, I think that typically the answer to that is going to be no, we don't want to right. follow those. That's right. That's those right. Yeah. So the, the two points are number one, you're not going to control what teenagers have access to. 
not not today, not with cell phones right. and, and the internet. You just an illusion. So that you you can't do it. Number two, you shouldn't do it. You should be allowing your children to grow and to expand and to become independent. You should be encouraging their independence. And the, and reading is one of the ways to do that. And third, who do you really want to ban? I mean, think about the countries that have successfully banned books. Right. Um, do you do you want is that is that what you envision the United States to look like? And right. I think for most people, the answer is no. Right. And and of course, obviously, we're not talking about those things that are, you know, very obviously pornographic. Yeah, or, or We're not I mean, talking about that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, we're talking about most literary works. Um, yeah. You know, it. <clears throat> We should we should we should have those discussions and talk right. about things and everything. So. Yeah, there was a time when men's magazines were displayed at the at the uh, checkout counter of right. the grocery store. They were behind uh, little uh, opaque coverings, but they're not there anymore. And I don't mind that. Okay, I, I have no problem with that because those are those are those are not those are not literary. Those are those are meant for a very different purpose. I have right. no problem at all putting those behind the counter. Right. Those are those 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 are provided for very particular purposes. And, and that's, right. that's not yeah. what we're talking about with not what we're talking about here at all. No. And, and, and I don't think anybody disagrees with that. Right. Um, we're not calling for that. Um, what we are saying is kids should have access and they should have access with their parents. If you want parents to be involved, then let parents be involved. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, Thank that's you. it for today. Until next time. Stay happy. Stay healthy and forget to be afraid.